Welcome to the Health and High Performance Podcast with your host, Coach Peter. This podcast is for busy modern humans who want to maximize their business and financial success and live in a healthy body that is strong, looks the part, and performs optimally both mentally and physically. In each episode, I share bite-sized health, fitness, and human performance lessons to help you live your best life. So, put on your headphones, head out of the door, and start stepping into your potential. In today's episode, you're going to learn how your breathing habits influence your ability to focus, sustain attention, and operate at your best. Your breathing habits also play a massive role in how you feel, how you think at any point in time, and how well you're able to tolerate stress. So I'm going to give you some very, very actionable tips on the back end of the episode on how to actually improve your everyday breathing habits. And before that, we're actually going to really focus on what does it even mean? What does what does better breathing habits mean? And what's wrong with certain types of breathing habits? So even though this topic can be very easy to overlook, because I know that I've been there, changing the way that you breathe and changing the way that you habitually move air in and out of your body is the single most important thing that you can do to improve the quality of your life. And how do I know? As I said, I've been there. Until a couple years ago, I'd never really given my breathing habits much thought. You know, you breathe every day, all the time, and you kind of know that if you stop breathing, then, well, that's kind of a bad thing. But Apart from that, you don't really you don't really think about breathing and that's pretty much it when it comes to how much thought you give to your everyday breathing habits. And it all changed for me very very quickly when I was diagnosed with obstructive sleep apnea at age 25. I'm going to do a deep dive on obstructive sleep apnea in a future episode of the podcast, but for now you should know that obstructive sleep apnea is a breathing disorder that occurs when you sleep. And you basically stop breathing for 10 to 15 seconds, and this can happen multiple times per hour. And every time you stop breathing 15, so for 10 to 15 seconds, you wake up or you experience what's known as a micro wake up, which is like you don't actually wake up to the point of knowing that, oh shit, I've just stopped breathing and I've literally just choked on my, my tongue. But you will be restless, you will toss and turn, and the quality of your sleep will be very, very suboptimal. And if this is happening even a couple times per hour, you're going to feel exhausted even after spending eight hours in bed. And literally every aspect of your physiology will be impaired, you know, all the way from how you feel, your mood your ability to focus, your desire and ability to socialize and your ability to control your emotions and your impulses, your physical performance, your mental performance, absolutely everything will suffer dramatically. Back then, I did a sleep study and the sleep study confirmed that I was waking up to five times per hour. And I was feeling like absolute crap after even eight hours of sleep. And five times an hour might sound extreme, but consider this. Actually, zero to five times per hour, zero to five wake-ups per hour is considered quote-unquote normal. And five to 15 wake-ups per hour is considered a mild obstructive sleep apnea. 15 to 30 times per hour is moderate. 
and 30 or more is considered severe. So imagine that you're waking up 30 times per hour because you've just stopped breathing. Like the, the quality of your sleep is going to be absolutely atrocious. And the thing is that this is a deal breaker. How you breathe during your sleep is an absolute deal breaker. It doesn't matter if you wear blue blocking glasses, if you're doing all the perfect, you know, your sleep hygiene is perfect. You don't look at screens, you don't over consume caffeine. This is a deal breaker. It doesn't matter how good you are with your sleep hygiene, because if you're not breathing during your sleep, you're not going to be sleeping. And not only is this going to have a huge impact on the quality of your life, but obstructive sleep apnea is also very clearly associated with cardiovascular problems, low libido, dementia, Alzheimer's disease, cancer, and an overall shorter lifespan. So this is something that we need to take very, very seriously. So when I was diagnosed with mild obstructive sleep apnea, when I was at 25 years old, you know, I realized that, holy crap, something really needs to happen or else I'm going to be in trouble by the time I'm 40 years old because these things tend to get worse as we age. So when you Google, you know, what can you do? What can you do for obstructive sleep apnea? The first thing that comes up is that you can use the gold standard, which is the CPAP mask. So the CPAP is short for continuous positive airway pressure mask and it's basically this mask that ensures a continuous airflow even if you suffer from obstructive sleep apnea and CPAP is great don't get me wrong it absolutely saves lives and it improves the quality of life of a lot of people however the problem is that it's a it's a machine that makes a bit of noise and it's literally this big mask on your face so it can be very cumbersome and it turns out that a lot of people who use CPAP mask, even with severe sleep apnea, they do not use a CPAP mask in a year's time from starting it. And this is a massive prob problem because the CPAP mask only works if you use it. So if you're not using it, it doesn't work. So therefore, you know, I didn't want to start using the CPAP mask and I definitely don't want to start using it when I'm 40 years old. So I really had to get to work and I had to start researching some other solutions to my breathing problems at night. And yeah, as I said, something that doesn't include wearing a CPAP mask. And one of the first things that I learned was that how you breathe at night is actually how highly dependent on how you breathe during the day. And I learned that it's extremely important to breathe through your nose at all points in time and not only during the night, but also during the day. See, this is because when you breathe through your nose, your tongue has a better chance of resting on the top of the palate. When the tongue is on the top of the palate, there is more space in the airway. On the other hand, when you breathe through your mouth, your tongue rests on the floor of the mouth. And this is a problem because the back part of the tongue attaches to something known as the hyoid bone, which is this bone that sits in the, it's next to the Adam's apple, and it's what makes up the Adam's apple and in the throat here. And together, the hyoid bone and the back portion of the tongue, they occupy a massive amount of real estate in your upper airway. So the implication of this is that if you breathe through your mouth at nighttime and your tongue and your hyoid bone rests lower 
and further back in the airway, the chances of your airway being obstructed partially, which creates snoring when the airway is partially obstructed and there's still airflow going through a small space, that creates a lot of turbulence and that creates the sound of snoring. Or the airway can also be blocked completely, which then, you know, your breathing stops completely. And this is what creates an obstructive sleep apnea event. And it turns out that it's not only your upper airway mechanics that get messed up because of mouth breathing, especially during the day, but a lot of other aspects of your body and a lot of other very important aspects of your physiology are absolutely impaired by mouth breathing. And one of these aspects is this minor little detail that's actually not so minor little detail, but it's a huge deal. It is the state of your autonomic nervous system. And this is a massive deal because the state of your autonomic nervous system has a downstream impact on literally every single cell in your body, as well as which parts of your brain are activated and therefore how you feel, how you think and how you behave at any point in time. And understanding what the autonomic nervous system is and how it functions, you know, at a very, very basic level, if you can understand this at a very basic level, at the level that I understand it, we don't have to go and become a neuroscientist to benefit from this stuff. If you can understand it the way that I'm going to teach it to you, this is literally the most important thing to understand about your body if you want to be as healthy and resilient as you can be, and if you want to perform at your best, both mentally and physically. The autonomic nervous system is a part of the nervous system that is responsible for vital functions that take place without our conscious control. Heart rate, blood pressure, digestion, brain region activation, fluid production, defecation, hormone secretion, the sexual response. These are all things that we don't have conscious control over. They are all governed by the autonomic nervous system. And thank God they are, because this is a lot of stuff to think about. You know, you've got enough stuff on your plate already. It's kind of nice that we don't have to think about digesting food or we don't have to think about making our heart beat at any point in time. The autonomic nervous system is then subdivided into two branches. So on one hand, we have the sympathetic nervous system. This is known as the fight or flight response. When you're in a state of fight or flight, your body prioritizes immediate survival over long-term health. So this is basically a, nature has given us this immediate physical performance enhancer. You know, everything that can happen inside your body to improve your physical performance that takes place and all the processes inside your body that are associated with your health in the future, well, there's no time for that. Instead, blood pressure increases, heart rate increases, breathing rate increases, you stop digesting food and blood is taken from your stomach and it's pushed into your arms and your legs so that you can fight or you can run away faster. Stress hormone production is going to increase and sex hormone production is going to stop. There is simply no time to reproduce when you are under a state of fight or flight. And it's very interesting what happens at the level of the brain because the, at the level of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, 
which is the most recently developed part of the brain, is turned off. And the limbic system, which is this very primitive part of the brain, is turned on. And this is a very significant detail for your cognitive performance at work, because the prefrontal cortex is responsible for the executive functions of the brain that makes humans uniquely human. Prefrontal cortex is responsible for working memory, problem solving, strategic thinking, planning and executing actions based on your strategic thinking, sociability, emotion control and impulse control. These characteristics and these functions of the prefrontal cortex, they are absolutely essential for your ability to create, socialize and succeed in the competitive world that we live in today. And another very interesting detail is that the prefrontal cortex is the last brain region to come fully online in our mid-20s. And it turns out that it is the lack of the prefrontal cortical control that makes adolescents behave like adolescents. And in the words of Robert Sapolsky, and Robert Sapolsky is a American neuroendocrinologist and the author of really good books called, you know, Why, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers and Behave, human behavior at its best and worst, as if I should, would highly recommend you to check them out. According to Sapolsky, the prefrontal cortex makes you do the right thing when it is the harder thing to do. So essentially, as stress arises and the cortex is inhibited, you're going to go backwards in time to your teens. And when you're an adolescent, and you're going to start behaving like an angry or an anxious teenager. And you might not have connected the dots before, but this is why adolescent criminal offenders are judged less harshly than adults. It's simply because it's seen as they are unable to control themselves like adults are because, because of the lack of their prefrontal cortical development. So this is why this is a big, big deal um, for how you behave and how you function in the world. So as I said, when the fight or flight state is turned on, the prefrontal cortex is turned off. The limbic system is turned on and the limbic system, which is also known as the reptile brain, because that's the level where the reptiles are at, at evolution, that is responsible for emotions such as fear, anxiety, frustration and anger and the whole fight or flight response itself. So obviously this is all going to be absolutely terrible news for your ability to perform at your best and make the best possible decisions that you would want to make to lead to the best possible financial and health outcomes for yourself. So we really want to be spending most of our existence in a state of rest and digest. This is the state, this is the other end of the autonomic nervous system. We have the sympathetic, the fight or flight, and we have the parasympathetic, the rest and digest. When you're in a state of rest and digest, the body is going to prioritize recovery and long-term health. Your heart rate is low, blood pressure is low, your breathing rate is low, you're digesting food, you're producing sex hormones, and you might be sexually aroused. Your stress hormone production is going to be very, very minimal, just enough to give you energy to get through your daily activities. At the level of the brain, the prefrontal cortex is turned on and you're able to perform at your best cognitively as well as you're going to have the chance of reasoning yourself out of any negative experience because you can think things through. You're not at the mercy of the limbic system and just the pure emotions that arise from there. And I want to state again that it is so, so important for your health and longevity 
that we spend the majority of your life, you spend the majority of your life in a state of rest and digest. And you only want to enter a state of fight or flight at very strategic times to enhance your physical performance. You know, when you run, when you lift weights, you want to be in a state of fight or flight. But if you don't, if you're not training, if you're not, you know, running, you do not want to exist in a state of stress. This is the same thing as if you're driving your car on your first gear, but you're going at a highway speed. That is a very, very bad news for the longevity of your car. And this is literally exactly the same thing what happens if you live and if you exist in a state of chronic stress. Chronic activation of the fight or flight state has been shown to be at the very, very root of many diseases that are rampant in our society, including cardiovascular problems, cancer, autoimmune diseases, depression, and obesity. So now that you know how the autonomic nervous system operates and you understand how it influences the workings of the brain, you understand how it impacts your behavior, your work performance, your health, you might be wondering how does all this relate to your breathing and how does all this relate to your everyday breathing habits? In 2017, a team of researchers from Stanford University led by Yakul A. Al showed that the area of the brain that controls breathing is reciprocally connected to the area of the brain that controls autonomic nervous system's arousal levels. So when you breathe faster, your autonomic nervous system's arousal levels are going to increase and the, when the arousal levels increase enough, the fight or flight state is turned on. And also, when you're in a state of fight or flight, one of the things that happens is that your breathing rate increases. So there's this reciprocal relationship. On the flip side, when you slow down your breathing and your autonomic nervous system arousal levels are going to decrease, the state of rest and digest is going to be turned on. And similarly, when you're in a state of rest and digest, well, now your breathing rate is going to reduce and your breathing is going to be nice and slow. So one of the most important takeaways from all this is that at any point in time, your breathing is a direct reflection of the arousal levels of your autonomic nervous system. Are you breathing fast and shallow? Your autonomic nervous system arousal levels are high. Are you breathing slow and deep? your autonomic nervous system arousal levels are low. And the real big kicker, the real, real big takeaway from all this is that we can control our breathing. You can con consciously slow down or you can consciously accelerate your breathing. And therefore, your breath is the gateway to accessing and influencing the state of your autonomic nervous system at any point in time. And therefore, influencing the functioning of literally every single aspect of your physiology at any point in time. This is why breathing exercise can be such powerful stress management tools when you use them consciously, when you take five to 10 minutes to slow down your breathing, practice some diaphragmatic breathing. This is why it's so beneficial for you because you activate the state of your rest and digest. And it's very, this is very, very effective, very, very replicable and reliable way to activate the state of rest and digest. However, the thing about breathing is that it's largely unconscious and you simply can't maintain your attention on your breathing for the whole day. 
And, you know, even though breathing is very, very important, there are other important things in your life that require your undivided attention. And you simply can't be thinking about your breathing all day long. But since your breathing influences your autonomic arousal levels, though, at all points in time, what happens if you habitually breathe fast, shallow, and if you specifically breathe through your mouth? And the other thing about mouth breathing is that mouth is linked to the chest and upper chest breathing is going to be very shallow and it's going to be very rapid compared to deeper diaphragmatic breathing. Diaphragm is the body's main breathing muscle and the nose is connected to the diaphragm. So when you breathe through your nose, you're going to activate the diaphragm to a higher degree and your breathing will be slower and deeper simply because of the fact that less air can travel through the nasal passages at any point in time compared to mouth breathing. So each inhalation and exhalation is going to take longer and your lungs are going to have more time to extract oxygen from air compared to if your inhalations and your exhalations are very short and the air is moving in and out of the body very, very rapidly. And even though this is a very important detail about the inefficiency of mouth breathing compared to nasal breathing, the point I'm trying to drive home is that habitual fast and shallow breathing, especially through your mouth, upper chest breathing, is going to cause completely unnecessary increases in the arousal levels of your autonomic nervous system. And to drive this home, when your autonomic nervous system arousal levels increase, your body shifts priorities from health and longevity towards immediate survival and physical performance. This has a direct impact on how you feel, your behavior, your mood, your emotions, thinking, your work performance, your physical performance, and your long-term health. And, you know, all this, like being in a state of fight or flight, this is very advantageous if you're about to lift weights or if you're about to run fast. However, it is highly disadvantageous if you're sitting around, if you're sitting around in a meeting, if you're preparing to give a talk, or if you're trying to fall asleep at nighttime. You do not want this, you know. I'm sure you've experienced this. If you've ever struggled to fall asleep at nighttime and your heart rate is elevated, your mind is racing a million miles an hour, it is simply because your autonomic nervous system is a little bit too aroused for the occasion and you have, for one reason or another, you have failed to slow down and lower the arousal levels of your autonomic nervous system so that you can achieve deep, great quality sleep. So now we know how your breathing habits, they influence your autonomic nervous system's arousal levels and subsequently how they influence your physical and mental performance, how they influence your stress levels, it really behooves us to ask the question, what then influences your breathing habits? And if we can answer this question, we can, and if, if we can answer this question and we can take control of your unconscious breathing habits and make your unconscious breathing deep, slow and through the nose, we, by definition, taking control of your stress. Remember that breathing is a direct reflection of your arousal states at any point in time. So if you learn how to control your breathing, if you learn how to slow down your unconscious breathing, you are going to be taking control of the arousal levels and the stress levels and your response to stress. And this is very, very powerful. This is why this is the, one of the most important things that you can possibly do 
for your health? And the answer to this, is this question, how can we do it? What influences breathing habits? The answer to this question is rather unintuitive because of some very unfortunate language choices to describe some certain phenomena in the body. And what I mean is that, unlike a lot of people think, breathing is not stimulated by lack of oxygen. Let that sink in. The act of breathing and the need to breathe is not stimulated by lack of oxygen. Instead, breathing is stimulated because of a rise in carbon dioxide. There are these little thermometer-like things called chemoreceptors in the brain and in the periphery. And these thermometers are monitoring blood carbon dioxide levels and acidity levels at all points in time. And it is these thermometers, if you will, they are very sensitive to the rise of carbon dioxide because obviously too much carbon dioxide will kill us very, very quickly. So when carbon dioxide levels increase in the blood, this is picked up by these chemoreceptors, by these thermometers, and signals will be sent to the central nervous system to activate breathing muscles to a higher degree and to increase breathing volume and rate so that you can dispose of the built-up carbon dioxide. Once again, it's not that you're lacking oxygen, it's that you, you don't experience air hunger and you don't experience lack of oxygen, but you, you experience the build-up of carbon dioxide. And it turns out that your relationship with carbon dioxide is a highly trainable quality that can change with repeated exposure to higher levels of carbon dioxide. So what does this all mean? If your carbon dioxide tolerance is low, that means that even a very modest increase in your blood carbon dioxide concentrations is going to be picked up by the chemoreceptors, by the little thermometer-like things. And you are going to experience air hunger and your breathing rate and volume is going to increase so that you can dispose of the build-up carbon dioxide. Now, if your carbon dioxide is low, that means that you're going to experience disproportionate amounts of breathlessness when you exercise because your muscles are working hard and they are producing a ton of carbon dioxide when they are working hard compared to when you're not moving at all. And this is the reason why for a lot of people, the limiting factor for their exercise tolerance is not the strength or the endurance of their muscles, Rather, it is the ability to tolerate carbon dioxide and stay calm and keep their breathing under control. This is because as soon as you start hyperventilating during exercise, your breathing gets really fast, shallow, irregular, and just really rapid and erratic. Your ability to sustain that level of exercise is going to come to an end very, very soon thereafter. Your muscles are gonna start burning like crazy, and you're going to be feeling absolutely gassed, you're going to feel absolutely out of breath. And this is not a very nice feeling. And if this is happening, you're going to feel subjectively that, oh gee, I've done a lot of really hard work because I've trained until my system failed. However, in reality, you probably haven't done much because your true limits of your muscles, they are still going to be light years away from where you had to stop exercising simply because you were too gassed, not because your muscles were even close to their true limits, simply because your breathing failed and your breathing failed 
because of your low tolerance to carbon dioxide. And if your tolerance to carbon dioxide is low, you're going to experience breathlessness even from very modest activity, you know, walking up a flight of stairs, walking up a hill, carrying groceries or any other daily activity that, you know, to be honest with you, these things shouldn't be that demanding. These things should not be leaving you completely gassed. And it's not only that you will experience breathlessness during any movement, but your if your carbon dioxide levels, carbon dioxide tolerance is low, your unconscious breathing rates are going to be excessively fast compared to what your body actually needs at any point in time. And this unnecessarily fast breathing is going to increase the arousal levels of your autonomic nervous system completely unnecessarily and therefore impair your ability to think, behave and tolerate normal stresses of normal life because your stress reaction, your response to stress is going to be elevated for no reason at all. You're also going to find it very difficult to fall asleep because you're chronically aroused. You're always breathing fast. Your system is always under a ton of stress. And when you do sleep, you're very likely to breathe through your mouth. And therefore, if you're breathing through your mouth when you sleep, well, you're not very likely to sleep at all because your sleep is very likely to be disturbed by episode of obstructive sleep apnea. So I hope that you're starting to sort of get the picture here of like how important this stuff is and how your how you breathe at any point in time, how you breathe during the day, how you breathe during the night, how big of an impact is actually having on the quality of your life. What do we want instead? We want to have high tolerance to carbon dioxide. When your tolerance to carbon dioxide is higher, you are going to be able to tolerate higher exercise intensities for longer and the perceived effort of physical activity will be greatly diminished simply by the fact that you will not be breathing as hard even though your muscles are still working just as hard. Your muscles, when they work hard, they're producing a ton of carbon dioxide. But if your carbon dioxide tolerance is higher and your breathing response will not be stimulated to such a high degree, you can stay calm, you can stay in control of your breathing and you can actually, when you exercise, you can actually take your sets and your, you know, your lifting and even your running, you can actually take it to the real limits of your muscles and the real limits of your body as opposed to the limits of your breathing and the limit of your carbon dioxide tolerance. When your carbon dioxide tolerance is higher, everyday activities like going up a stairs, carrying stuff, going uphill, these things are going to be a breeze. You're not going to feel out of breath. You're not even going to notice it that you've just gone up a flight of stairs. And of course, your unconscious, your habitual breathing is going to be slow, deep and through the nose. It's going to be very easy for you to fall asleep because you, it's very easy for you to drop into a state of low arousal at nighttime. And you're much less likely to suffer from sleep disorder breathing problems like snoring or sleep apnea because you're more likely to be breathing through your nose while you sleep. In essence, when you increase your carbon dioxide tolerance, you take control of your breathing habits. And by definition, when you do that, you take control over your response to stress. Instead of fast and shallow and through the mouth, 
you want slow, deep and through the nose. Another great thing about this is that the ex exercises that allow you to challenge and increase your carbon dioxide tolerance, these are exercises that are really going to turn off a wandering mind instantaneously and they're going to bring your attention to the present moment because um, this kind of exercise is slightly stressful by definition. If you're not experiencing air hunger, if you're not elevating carbon dioxide levels to a high enough degree, you're not going to be doing much. But when you do experience air hunger, this is something that will instantaneously quieten your mind and it will be very easy for you to narrow your focus on your breathing. And this alone can just the practice itself, the benefits of the practice are immense, but just the practice itself can be highly beneficial and psychologically freeing because it's very easy to use it to anchor you into the present moment as opposed to being lost in thought worrying about the past or the future. This is all because the human body is so wired to not suffocate because suffocating is obviously very bad news and this kind of air hunger training is it's kind of stressful to you but just like regular exercise a little bit of stress is not a bad thing and just like normal physical activity short-term stress to the body offer very very high long-term benefits and improve our tolerance to future stress and I really love one of Tim Ferriss's quotes it says that the more voluntary suffering you can build into your life the less you will suffer involuntarily. And this is very, very true when it comes to this type of a breathing practice. The more you can voluntarily control your breathing and slow down your breathing, the less you're going to be breathing involuntarily when you're not thinking about it and therefore you're going to be suffer, suffering less involuntarily. So what should you do specifically? How do you how do you improve your carbon dioxide tolerance? And how do you slow down your unconscious breathing rates? Well, the simplest way is to just go for a walk. I hope you're walking right now. I hope that by now you're breathing through your nose only. And a lot of people are going to find even just walking and only breathing through the nose very, very challenging. And you're probably going to experience some air hunger. This is a mildly uncomfortable feeling that, oh gee, I really feel like breathing more now. So if you experience this from just from walking and only breathing through your nose, that means that your carbon dioxide tolerance is pretty low and your body is already trying to increase breathing rates to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide back to what you're comfortable with. And if you're finding that you simply just, you can't walk and only breathe through your nose, just slow down your speed, walk slower. And the harder your muscles are working, even when you walk faster, I mean, when you walk faster compared to if you're not walking at all, your muscles are going to be working a little bit harder. And the harder your muscles are working, the more carbon dioxide they are producing. So I would recommend you to start where you're at and then progressively challenge your body with more and more and more. And carbon dioxide tolerance is a highly trainable physical quality, just like the strength and size of your muscles. And very, very soon you're going to find that just regular walking, you know, that's not really challenging you you at all and that's when you're going to have to engage in more challenging carbon dioxide increasing exercises you know you can overload you can walk by you can overload by walking faster 
or you can slow down your breathing while you walk and while you are actually using your muscles. Again, when you, when you use your muscles, you're gonna increase your CO2 levels. This is going to trigger air hunger. So your goal is to get comfortable with the slightly uncomfortable sensation of air hunger. And you can also do this while sitting. And this is one of my favorite things to do in a sauna or when I meditate and especially before going to bed. And this is how you really prepare your body for optimal night's sleep because not only will you activate the state of rest and digest and you can slow down and lower the arousal levels of your autonomic nervous system, but you can actually really prime your breathing to be very light, slow and deep while you sleep and you can reduce the chances of any kind of sleep disordered breathing problems. And finally, you can also hold your breath. And breath holding exercises where you actually hold your breath after an exhalation, this is the most effective way to challenge your carbon dioxide tolerance. And when you do that, you're basically simulating a high altitude environment where oxygen levels are low and carbon dioxide levels are high. And you know that elite level endurance athletes before they have a very, very important competition, they usually go to high altitude just before the competition because they can improve their ability to extract oxygen from air and utilize oxygen more efficiently. And the good news here is that what I'm saying is that you don't have to book a trip to the Himalayas. Instead, you can reap the benefits of high altitude training from the comfort of your own home, from the comfort of a lockdown or in the public transport or even in a meeting that if you're in a meeting that you really don't have to be in, this is something that you can be training and nobody else will have an idea of what you're doing. And this kind of a practice can be a very productive way to pass time. And what I found personally that it's literally impossible to get bored when you know how to do this stuff and you know how to train this quality. So what I would like you to do now is to take you through an assessment that has been developed to screen for breathing dysfunctions and to screen for carbon dioxide tolerance. Before we do that, I wanna say that pregnant women and those who have high or low blood pressures, you should not try any kind of breathing exercises that challenge your carbon dioxide tolerance to a high degree because this can have serious consequences. So if you're a pregnant woman or if your blood pressure is abnormally high or low, you should always consult your physician before slowing down your breathing or holding your breath to the point of experiencing air hunger. However, even if you're pregnant or even if you have high blood pressure, you will definitely benefit from slowing down your breathing. Just make sure that you do not do it to the point of experiencing air hunger. So if you're pregnant and your blood pressure is within the healthy range, let's do a quick assessment on your carbon dioxide tolerance. So this assessment is known as the BOLT score, the body oxygen level test. So what I want to do now is I want to walk you through it first and don't do it just yet, but I want you to find your phone and find your stopwatch because you're going to need it in just one moment. So I'm gonna ask you to take a silent breath in through the nose and a silent breath out through the nose. Then I want you to hold your breath and I want you to start the timer when you start holding your breath. What we're gonna do is we're gonna see how many seconds does it take before you experience the first unconscious signal to breathe. So this is not a test of maximum breath hold time. I do not want you to push it. I just want to see how many seconds does it take before you experience the first unconscious signal to breathe? 
it might be an uncomfortable feeling oh i don't want to do this anymore or it might be a twitch of the neck muscles uh, a twitch of the diaphragm a twitch of your abdominals anything whatever is the first unconscious signal that your body gives you that now is time to breathe i want you to stop the timer and i want you to take a breath in through the nose and this first breath in through the nose after the breath hold it shouldn't be an intense gasp it should be a silent breath through the nose and if you had to gasp for air it means that you pushed a little bit too far and that your actual score is much less so let's do the test first and then i'll talk about what the results mean so in 10 seconds i want you to take a normal breath in and normal breath out through the nose there should be a silent breath you should not hear it so now let's take a normal breath in and then a normal breath out silent breath out and after you've exhaled you start the timer and you start holding your breath so once again I want you to hold your breath until you feel the first unconscious signal to breathe so this is not a maximum breath hold time test so whatever it is for you that is the first unconscious signal to breathe I want you to stop holding your breath and I want you to stop the timer so we've done 20 seconds now we're gonna go a little bit longer so once again the first breath after this test it should not be a big gasp for air it should be a very easy breath in through the nose and we can finish right about then so that's 40 seconds so basically the longer it took for you to experience air hunger that means that the higher your tolerance to carbon dioxide is and the less time it took for you to experience air hunger the lower your carbon dioxide tolerance is so if you got anywhere between 10 to 20 seconds that means that your carbon dioxide tolerance is quite low and you have a lot to gain from increasing your carbon dioxide tolerance if you got anything between 20 and 30 that means that you've still got quite a bit of room to improve and 30 to 40 is pretty good and anything from 40 and above that's fantastic and that is the goal that is the goal to get to a point when it takes 40 seconds for you to experience any kind of signal from your body to to breathe and that means that your carbon dioxide tolerance is very high you're probably someone who finds it very easy to fall asleep you tolerate stress both physical and mental stress very very well and you're probably someone who's very very healthy so if you want to take action on what you've learned today and if you want to start improving your carbon dioxide tolerance the best way for you to do that is to head over to coachputer.com slash breathing foundations and get started with the breathing foundations course the breathing foundations course is an incredibly comprehensive course on the theory and practice of breathing training obviously carbon dioxide tolerance and the stress tolerance exercises they are one of the main things that are covered in the course however there are also modules and exercises that improve your posture the way you move your body relaxation exercises sleep preparation exercises and there is also an eight-week orofacial myofunctional training program so omt orofacial myofunctional training it's basically strength and conditioning training for the muscles of your face and your upper airways and the benefits of this kind of training include reduced likelihood of snoring and sleep apnea 
and improved muscle tone of the muscles of the neck and the face and the ease of nasal breathing. When you activate and strengthen certain muscles in your face, you're going, it's going to become easier for you to breathe through your nose. A meta-analysis in 2015 by Camacho et al. looked at 11 studies on the effectiveness of orofacial myofunctional training on obstructive sleep apnea. Across these 11 studies, there were 120 patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea, meaning that these people were waking up a minimum of 15 times per hour, which is absolutely staggering. The results were that across these 11 studies, there was an average of 50% reduction in the wake-ups per hour, and that is an absolutely massive change. And the researchers attribute this massive reduction in the amount of wake-ups to the improved strength and functioning of the muscles, of especially of the back portion of the tongue, the whole tongue, and the muscles that create up and comprise and make your upper airway. So when these muscles become stronger, when their endurance improves, when they function better, your chances of experiencing snoring or obstructive sleep apnea is going to reduce massively. Obviously, we all know also that it's very common for people to, you know, inject Botox or other chemicals into their face to improve the tone of their face and get rid of saggy skin. And uh, very few people actually train to activate and grow and train these muscles, which is absolutely something that you can do with orofacial myofunctional training. And the best part about it is that the only side effect that you will get is that it's going to be easier for you to breathe through your nose when you're awake and when you sleep. So all that is going to be covered in the Breathing Foundations course, along with all the carbon dioxide tolerance, movement, posture and relaxation exercises. So to recap today's episode, when it comes to breathing, less is more. You want to breathe through your nose and you want your breathing to be slow and deep, especially when you're not thinking about it, because it's the unconscious breathing habits that have a huge impact on the way that you feel, on the way that you act, think and behave at any point in time. And how do you, how do you slow down your breathing then? How do you make na deep nasal breathing easier? How do you make it automatic and unconscious? You have to build your carbon dioxide tolerance and the best way for you to do that is to follow the structure and the instructions that I put, put together in the Breathing Foundations course. If you have any questions or any comments about today's episode, as always, feel free to message me on Instagram at Coach Butter, and I promise to get back to every each one of you. And if today's episode has been useful to you, it would really help me a ton if you could please, please, please leave me a rating and a review so that more people can get access to this life-changing information. And even better, if you can share this episode with at least one other person who you want to see to live their best life, that would be very, very helpful and I would appreciate that a lot. I hope that I'm going to see you inside the Breathing Foundations course. This episode has been an absolute pleasure for me. Thank you so much for listening. This is Coach Putter. Let's do this.